Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Free Reads. Well, as it so happens, I am traveling this week. I started in Portland, Oregon, and will continue on to Seattle, Washington, where I will be teaching at the Richard Hugo House with my good friend and newly minted Science Fiction Writers of America's Grandmaster, Connie Willis. I will also be attending the Locus Awards, as a guest, not as a nominee, and panelizing with Connie and Kidge Johnson and Gary Wolf about the nature of success in our little corner of literature. Success? Who, me? In any event, how about I cut the usual nattering short and just go straight to the story? Hey! Wait just a minute there. Hey! Enough! Okay, then. As Genevieve steps up to the mic and Faye heads home from police headquarters, it's time for part four of The Last Judgment. Eleven. Sharifa groaned and turned to me as I slipped under the sheet. You okay? Yep, I lied. What time is it? I kissed her. Half past tomorrow. <laughs> Love you. Good night. I expected to spend the rest of the night chasing the Toscanos around in my head, but the kiss of the pillow was too sweet. The next thing I knew, the bedroom was full of sunlight and July's steamy breath. It was 8.30. Sharifa had managed to pack Aisa off to daycare and herself off to the hospital without waking me. There was half a pot in the coffee maker and cantaloupe in the fridge. I sat down with the file that Sturro had sent me. It contained three police reports, one each from missing persons, a fifth precinct detective named Alejandra Urego, and the coroner's office. Renata Descano would be forty-seven if she'd been alive that bright summer morning, just a few years older than me. She had worked a series of pretend jobs, none of which had stuck, selling toys and shoes and houseplants, grooming pets, waitressing. She had studied graphic design in college, which must have been nice for her. Not many Janes our age had the time to go to college. I pegged her as a fluff snoozing through life on a bed of mom's money. She'd been seated with Anne when she was 22, but mothering apparently wasn't in her skill set either. She and the daughter got along like garlic and oatmeal. Maud and nannies raised the kid, mostly nannies if I knew Maud, Renata had moved out of the mansion on Fairview after a fight with Maud three months before she died. She took a studio apartment at Ninth and Mayflower, quite a tumble from the Descano lifestyle. The upstairs neighbor reported she was quiet and didn't seem to have visitors. Love life? Unknown. Maud had told missing persons that Renata's last relationship had been with a doctor named Khalil Haddad, but that they had broken up a year before she moved out. That checked out. Renata had been unemployed at the time of her death and, as far as anyone knew, wasn't looking for work. Nothing to follow up on there. The sheriff in Lincolnville fished her out of the river 11 days after Maud had reported her missing. Lincolnville was some 20 miles downstream. The coroner's autopsy reported no external wounds, although she had five broken ribs, one of which penetrated the aorta. Her liver, spleen, and heart were lacerated. All indications were that she had jumped off one of the downtown bridges, most likely the Sanger, some 200 feet above the river. Jumpers go from 70 miles an hour to zero and impact with the water. Not good for the internal organs. Andy, then Anne, Descano, had run away from home on the news of her mother's death, 
but had returned three days later in time for the funeral. I didn't see anything of much interest there either. I did see why Detective Urego had dropped this one into the suicide file. Renata Descano was unemployed, living in a shabby walk-up, had no lover or friends, and was estranged from her family. There was no note, but that meant nothing. Less than a third of all suicides bothered to explain themselves. She died on June 4th and was the city's 189th suicide of the year. I got up and thought about pouring myself another cup of coffee. Instead, I went into the bathroom to look in the mirror for the superwoman Siren and Mayor Sams were counting on to save the city. I couldn't find her, but I did manage to brush my teeth. I needed to get on my bike and retrieve the stolen Bosch before somebody found it, not that I thought anyone would. I needed to ask Maud about Renata's death, not that I thought she'd have anything new to tell me. I needed a drink, but I'd promised Sharifa I would stop, which meant that 9.17 in the morning was too early to start. Instead, I wandered into the living room and picked up Aisa's toys. Although from time to time we retired her playthings to the hall closet to keep from being overrun, there were still more of them than we had bought. Maybe the devils were seeding them at night while we were asleep, when they were giving birth to the next generation under the couch. Aisa's favorites were the littlers, squat, round, non-toxic people exactly too big for her to swallow. She had enough of them to form a polyethylene commune. Grannies, mommies, aunties, police, firefighters, doctors, nurses, mail carriers, sailors, farmers, kids in every color and shape, as well as sheep, cows, horses, pigs, dogs, cats, and for some reason, giraffes and elephants. They lived at the Animal Friends Farm or the Family Fun House and commuted in the Move-O-Matic bus or a fleet of go-go cars. She also had a collection of electronic toys that beeped, burped, squawked, sang nursery rhymes, and counted to ten in English, Spanish, and Mandarin. I dragged a corn popper push toy like one I had as a kid into the corner next to a red wagon and pulled her two ladybug rolling treasure chests out onto the rug and started tossing stuff into them. I was sorting the plastic hammers, screwdrivers, and saws of the handy Ellie toolbox from the fake stethoscope, blood pressure cuff, and otoscope of the Debbie the Doctor medical kit, when I remembered that I had copied the names of three doctors from Andy Toscano's contacts the night before. I lunged into the kitchen for my sidekick. Dr. Nikel Fuchs was a dermatologist. Dr. Catherine Reed was a psychiatrist. Dr. Khalil Haddad was an urologist who specialized in phalloplasty and sexual reassignment. 12. If the mayor had not given her blessing to whatever it was I was supposed to be doing for Siren, I might have waited a day or two to retrieve the Bosch, but I figured the cops would have orders to give me a good leaving alone. As it was, I pedaled past the hiding place and locked my bike to a tree in front of Joyce's convenience store just up the street. I didn't get to meet Joyce, but I did find a bot who sold me an overpriced ice cream sandwich for a nickel. I ate it sitting on the wall where the painting was. Birds sang, the sun shone, no passers-by stopped to chat, no bots pried, no nosy cops cruised past. A capstone just happened to slide out of place, and a priceless art object just happened to find its way under my shirt. I folded the ice cream wrapper up, licked my fingers, and sauntered casually back to the bike. I slipped the Bosch into the left saddlebag. I was sweating by the time I reached the Descano mansion. I wondered if maybe I could convince Sharifa to let me spend a hundred of my retainer on a scooter as I rang the bell and waited. The bot Kirby took his time. The midday sun was a punishment. I knocked again. I waited, then pounded on the double doors. I was getting ready to call Maud on my sidekick when I heard fumbling inside. I suppose I might have been more surprised if President Gleesman or the Chryster Pope or Frosty the Snow Girl had opened the door. But as it was, I almost fell out of my shoes when Andy Descano stood blinking at me from the gloomy interior of 122 Fairview. Hello, Andy, I said. It's hard to sound nonchalant when your voice crackles like Rice Krispies. Do I know you? 
The light hit him so hard that he swayed. We chatted last night, I said, but you hung up before I could turn on the charm. The kid didn't like that much. He glanced past me, as if a SWAT team might be hiding in the marigolds or ninjas slithering across the manicured lawn. Then he grabbed my arm and pulled. Since it was one of the arms I needed, I followed it into the house. The reception hall was stuffy as a bishop's closet. The lights were out, and it was dark when the doors closed. Just a smudge of afternoon sun oozed through leaded windows at the landing where the grand staircase reversed direction. It looked like something had tripped a circuit. I was just a sepia shadow in the big gilded mirror, Andy's face a pale smudge. Beetle's dead. He'd been drinking. I could have bottled his breath and sold it in old courthouse square for a nickel a nip. I guess he won't need that operation after all. Operation? Andy was trying for cagey, but looked to be a few working neurons short at the moment. Don't know what you're talking about. You remember the one Dr. Haddad was going to do tomorrow? He folded into himself. Scocked. He was sniffing. It's all cocked up in my fault. When he staggered against the wall, I caught him. There was a lot of him to catch. That's okay, Girl Scout, I said. Where did you leave your drink? He took a vague swipe in my direction and almost pulled the two of us over. Not a Girl Scout. Okay, then, I aimed him down the hall. Where's Kirby? You, he peered at me. You're the detective. Sure. We were moving now, but then so were the tectonic plates. Did you find it? I find all kinds of stuff. I didn't let him see my scowl. Just now, I'm looking for a bot. Gone. He flapped both hands and giggled. <laughs> Flew away. The kitchen was the size of a basketball court, a designer's folly of stainless steel, teak, and hand-painted tile. There was a six-burner gas stove, a microwave with more controls than a starship, and a refrigerator big enough to hide a body in. A wall screen with a sound off played an old sitcom from before the disappearance, something about wacky aliens who weren't devils and didn't keep bots. Sleek chrome bar stools with leather seats gathered around a semicircular bump in the court's countertop. A bottle of Crown Royal waited there for Andy next to a whiskey glass in which ice cubes were dying. A silver inhaler had rolled to the edge of the counter. I loaded Andy onto a stool. He slid down, but not off. When he fumbled for the inhaler, I swiped it away. What is this, I said, holding it at arm's length. He smirked at me. Manly drugs for a manly man. I sniffed, but didn't squeeze the trigger. Bliss, I said, sugar pop. You know your toots, sister. He managed to capture the glass before I slid the whiskey bottle out of reach. Don't be like that, he rattled the ice. Pour yourself one too, detective. I carried the inhaler and the bottle to the far side of the kitchen and then started opening cabinets. Where's Maud? Don't know. Napping? Shopping? <laughs> Dead. There were brushed steel canisters with glass tops near the sink. They were filled with flour, sugar, ground coffee, and loose tea. I found a French press in the cabinet above them, filled the beaker with water, and put it in the microwave. Andy's slouch deepened. Pretty soon he was going to need a seatbelt. The microwave timer chirped. I twisted the lid off the coffee canister. I scooped four spoonfuls of rough grounds into the boiling water. Andy watched me stir it. The room filled with an aroma that was first nutty, then bitter and earthy, but finally clean, cleaner than anything else in that unhappy house. I didn't want to think of the things I might do for coffee like that. Why are you here, Andy? I live here. Not according to Maud. He let that pass. If it had been Dr. Khalil Haddad who had changed this kid's sex, he must be a master sculptor of flesh. Andy Descano had been rebuilt for power. He could have found work picking up junk cars with his bare hands and tossing them onto trucks. His tight white tank top made it clear that he had had top surgery. Who knew what was underneath the baggy shorts? His feet were bare, showing toenails painted with purple glitter. 
His skin was thick and oily, and he wore his brown hair short enough to show scalp. Maybe he was good-looking, or maybe he was just young and confident. It was hard to tell with his expressions smeared by drugs and alcohol. Maud says you moved out, hopping in and out of skip houses. He glowered at me, breathing with his mouth open. I could hear the whiskey still rasping in his throat. His snoring would be no fun that night. "'Cause a beetle,' he said at last. "'You were sweet on each other?' "'Loved him. Sure. Is that why you stole the Bosch?' I poured him a coffee. "'To pay for his operation?' He shook his head as if trying to clear it. "'Yesterday was my birthday.' "'Happy birthday to you.' I saluted him with a cup. "'Cream? Sugar?' "'Black.' I passed it over. "'July 12th. When he wrapped his big hands around the cup, it disappeared. "'I became a man exactly one year ago.' Oh, is that what you are? He smiled, since obviously I hadn't a clue. Not afraid of the devils, I said. Nah, he sipped. They don't get it. There's more to being a man than chromosomes. He eyed me over the rim of the cup. Stop staring at that bottle and pour yourself a drink. You know you want one. I did. But I didn't like that he could tell. I opened the cabinet where I had found the French press and pushed the whiskey onto the bottom shelf with a collection of pricey serving bowls and trays. Weak move, Faye. I closed the cabinet. This kid had me turned around. I decided that I had probably underestimated him. He was, after all, a Descano. We heard shuffling upstairs and then a toilet flushed. It took the lady of the house about a week and a half to get downstairs. 13. Maud Descano wore a blue silk brocade kimono with sleeves down to her knees. She didn't seem surprised to see me, but she didn't seem pleased either. I see that you've met my granddaughter. She wriggled a hand out of its preposterous sleeve to open the refrigerator. Maud doesn't understand about gender either, said Andy. But then she's a granny. The granny produced a medicine bottle from under her sleeve, read the label, and then shook it. What don't I understand? Never mind, Nana. I think the detective found your bosh. That didn't surprise Maud either. Is this true? She opened a drawer and picked out a teaspoon. Andy grinned at me. He was trying to write all my lines. Sure, I said, I have it. With you? Maud poured something white and gluey onto the spoon. In a safe place. She dipped the spoon into her mouth and then grimaced. It was in a safe place before. Both Descanos thought this was funny. I was starting to feel lighter than air. If they laughed in my direction, I might blow out of the doorway and down into the dark hall. Anne here made the job easy, I said. She told me where she'd hidden it, although it was kind of by accident. Andy. He let his irritation show. My name is Andy. It was my turn to grin. I never hid it, he said. I never took it. It was all beetle all the time. Should have never showed him it. Never brought him to this damn house. Never, never, never. Who is this person? said Maud. Another Tommy named Bahita Berry, I said. Andy's favorite beetle. He was in the middle of a sex change, and I think they stole the Bosch to pay for it. Only he got dead last night. You're a damn fool, the granny turned on the kid. You and your friends can flay yourself to ribbons and you'll never be men. There are no men. Andy's fists curled, but he said nothing. I wondered what I'd do if he went after Maud. What I could do. Do the police know? About Barry, yes. That Andy's connected, yes. This is a murder, so they'll have to talk to him. About the Bosch, no. I leaned against the counter, feeling like I was back in control. Maybe I can tidy this up, but you'll have to help. Otherwise, you'll have the law here peeking under your beds and opening your medicine cabinets, and there's nothing your connections will be able to do. Help how? Start by telling me about Renata. They goggled at me as if I'd grown another nose. 
You remember Renata, I said, someone's daughter, someone else's mom? Leave her out of this. Andy shot off his stool and seemed about to come across the counter at me. Shut up, Anne. Maud pressed her hands flat against the front of her kimono. What about Renata? I could see the outline of her bony thighs. You had a fight? She moved out? She was so unhappy that she jumped off a bridge? I watched both of them for reactions. Unless someone pushed her? Nobody pushed her. All the air went out of Andy, and he slumped back down, deflated. The suggestion only annoyed Maud. What did you fight about, I said. She wanted a great deal of money, said Maud. I didn't give it to her. You seem to get that a lot, don't you? Was this money for Khalil Haddad by any chance? How do you know about her? Hire a P.I. and you're going to give up secrets. Get used to it. So she asked for money for her lover. Renata just thought she was in love with her. Him, said Andy. Khalil is a man, Maud. He was going all dreamy and distant on us, as if he were seaside on another planet where the ocean was Canadian whiskey and the atmosphere pure bliss. I'm a man. She wanted me to set this quack up in practice to take advantage of people like poor Anne here. Confused people, unhappy people. I told her no. She left me, and then Haddad left her. You threatened him, said Andy. You broke them up. That's just what Haddad says. How do you know what he says, I asked. Because my poor, confused granddaughter went to Dr. Khalil Haddad and spent money I had given her for other purposes on an extensive program of self-mutilation. We do talk, you know. She's not always like this. You've had both surgeries, Andy? I still needed him in the conversation. What? He summoned up a sleepy leer. Want to feel inside my shorts? Why Haddad, Andy? Why choose him for the operation? Because he's the best. He was nodding, but not at me. Ask anyone. Ask this granny. Maybe a thumb in Maud's eye, too? The question didn't interest him. Of course she did it to hurt me, said Maud. I did it to become who I am. It sounded like something he had heard someone else say once. She can't help herself sometimes, Maud said, but she knows I still love her. This might have been heartwarming to a family therapist, but I was a P.I. But you didn't have enough money for Beetle to get cut, too, so you stole the Bosch. The operation doesn't cost that much, said Andy wearily. He wanted me to steal it so we'd have enough to pay for the procedure and then go away together while he was healing. Go away, he said, and stay away. I said, no, be smart. Sure, I can get all the money we'll ever need, but a little at a time. Maud won't care. He folded his big arms on the counter and rested his head on them. Maud loves me, he muttered. You asked her for six thousand dollars, not so little, and all at once. I was going to pay for the operation. He wouldn't listen. He spoke with his face turned away. Doesn't matter anymore. Maud came around the counter and rubbed his shoulders. You're tired, baby, she murmured. Go upstairs and lie down. She waited for a response, but Big Andy Descano didn't stir. Go! He groaned when she pulled him upright, groaned again when he stood, eyelids drooping, face slack. She gave his ass a love pat, and off he trundled, like a little girl the size of a post office who had stayed up past her bedtime. Maud settled on a stool and railed around to face me. She has issues, but no more than the rest of us. I thought she was either being too optimistic about the kid or way too hard on womankind. You believe that about the friend stealing your Bosch? Why not? How is he going to cash in? Who's the buyer? How would I know? Haddad, maybe? She shook her head. Andy says your bot is gone. What happened to him? Another head shake. I pulled out my cigarettes. Look, Maud, either we write our own story or the cops will tell it their way with you and Andy featured. I offered her a smoke, but she waved me off. It's one thing when someone kills herself. That's just weather to cops, what happens every day. Murder gets their attention. 
So who took the Bosch, and why was Kirby covering it up? Was he? Sure, that's why he's gone. I flicked my lighter and watched the cigarette catch. Let's say it was Andy. Makes sense that Kirby would shield him, at least for a while. So our story is about loyalty, assuming that bots are capable of it. But if Beetle stole the Bosch... I watched smoke curl around my fingers. Well, maybe loyalty still plays. Andy convinces the bot not to say anything when he promises to confront Beetle and get your painting back. But then you hire me and everything gets more complicated. Go on? Go on where? I looked for the ashtray that wasn't there. No matter how the story starts, it ends up with Beetle dead. Who killed him? The buyer? Who would buy it? I've been wondering that myself, said Maud, ever since it went missing. Turn it around. I finally flicked Ash into the sink. Who knew you had it, or that it even existed? I've hated the damn thing ever since Nicky brought it home. I most certainly did not show it off, she considered. Anne and Renata, obviously. Kirby. I don't know who else. Nicky bought it from Sotheby's, but that's long gone. I suppose there could be records somewhere. Haddad? Possibly. I sucked smoke deep into my lungs and pretended to think. How about the devils? Why would you say that? Why not? I felt a twinge that might have been inspiration or maybe just a nicotine tremor. Know any devils? No, she made a lemon face. I've met a couple. Like who? The local group. There's Pej. That's the one that Greta Sams meets with. I think Siren gives the orders. Frems and Copsy. I don't know much about them. Eller claims it's studying us. The mayor told me she hates the devils. She probably does. But she lives in the real world, not like Anne and all her Tommy friends. This is their zoo, Hardaway. The devils are the keepers and we're the specimens. The bots feed us and sweep up our shit. If that's what Maud thought, it was no wonder her family went squirrely. But then it was something I might have said, before Sharifa and I had Aisa. Have any of them ever been here, maybe seen the painting? I threw a fundraiser last summer for the Hopewell Museum. Tents on the back lawn, catered brunch in the frost-string quartet. The local devils came for the music and stayed for maybe an hour. Greta said it was a goodwill gesture, but they nearly spoiled the party. I didn't see them go inside, but the doors were open the whole time. People need to use the bathrooms. You see the devils being mixed up in this? I don't see anything unless it hits me in the face, but this helps, Maud. You really have the bosh. When will you bring it? Tomorrow. Then leave. I'm tired. She dismissed me with an abrupt sweep of her hand. I want this over with, Hardaway. Me too, I said. Don't bother to get up. I'll let myself out. I couldn't help it. I felt sorry for the Descanos. Anyone could see that Maud was hollowed out by age and disease, and still she was spending whatever strength she had trying to protect Andy, who resented her. And what had it been like to grow up and change sexes with sad, absent Renata and steely, arrogant Maud as your two mothers? Mothers and daughters. I checked my sidekick and realized that I was going to be late getting Aisa. As I trotted through the house, I imagined our daughter at Andy's age, all grown up. Her chances for happiness would have to be better, assuming I could stay out of her way. I was probably more like Maud than I wanted to admit— but at least Aisa had Sharifa to give her what she needed, even if I couldn't. The reception hall was still dark and close. That bothered me. All the lights had been on in the kitchen. I found a triple switch and flipped all three. Nothing. I opened both the front doors wide to let in some light, and then peered through the glass front of the gun cabinet. One of the handgun mounts was empty. And we'll stop there. You've been listening to Part 4 of The Last Judgment, read by Genevieve Achel. 
It first appeared in Asimov's science fiction magazine in the April-May 2012 issue. Don't forget that you can continue your Kelly listening experience on Audible, where two of my novels have just been published and where James Patrick Kelly's Story Pod awaits your pleasure. And then there's James Patrick Kelly's Strange Ways, for those of you of the reading with your eyes persuasion. Next week, the plot thickens in the case of the missing Bosch on the Free Reads podcast. <laughs>